You are now listening to the August 29th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston from Story of Kings. Last time, we talked about how the north and south became divided in Israel after the death of Solomon. Today our goal is to get acquainted more with King Rehoboam of southern Judah and King Jeroboam of northern Israel. Rehoboam was raised as a prince, son of Solomon, an Ammonite woman named Nehemiah. He grew up enjoying the amenities of a wealthy and stable country under his father's reign. He lived affluently, but it appears he seemed a bit immature. For one, he lacked the knowledge and wisdom to be a king. Basically, his poor judgment is what caused Israel to become divided into north and south. Some of the listeners may remember how he rejected the plea of the northern tribes to lessen the burden his father's administration had imposed on his people. Rehoboam might have realized something was not quite right when he saw he wasn't being acknowledged as king by northern Israel. He might have gotten even more confused when he saw his official, Hadoram, killed by the people in the north. Regardless of his depth of understanding of the current situation, He must have gotten scared. He hastily returned to Jerusalem. Then, of course, he wanted to hit back at northern Israel. He gathered the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to war against them. At that time, southern Judah enjoyed a stronger economy and had a well-organized military. It had bigger and better trained soldiers compared to what northern Israel had. Rehoboam must have liked his chances. However, God did not approve of this war. The word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel in Judah and Benjamin, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. When he heard the word of the Lord, Rehoboam stopped the process and returned the soldiers from going to war against Jeroboam. This event is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. Rehoboam heard God's word and decided to obey God's command not to go to war against his brothers. After this act of obedience, Rehoboam became more powerful and influential. He lived in Jerusalem, and from there he built more fortified cities in Judah to defend the land against invading troops. Overall, he beefed up the national infrastructure and strengthened military power. In the meantime, Jeroboam of northern Israel stuck to idol worship. He drove away the chief priests who carried out the duties of the Lord so he could worship idols other than the true God. In response, Rehoboam showed kindness to the chief priests and Levites that were driven away from northern Israel. Therefore, they helped southern Judah for three years and southern Judah became more powerful. Rehoboam and the people were following the path of David and Solomon, at least for the time being. Well, as the nation and its influence got stronger, Rehoboam became more proud and focused on himself. He rejected the law of the Lord just as his father Solomon did toward the end of his life. Since the king rejected God, the people also rejected God. 1 Kings chapter 14 verses 22 through 24 shows an account of how wicked southern Judah became. They became more evil than its ancestors and their sins angered the Lord. Scripture reads, 
Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy more than all that their fathers had done with the sins which they committed. For they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and Asherah poles on every high hill and beneath every luxuriant tree. There were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. As their sins mounted, God called them to account by imposing on them an adversary. Shishak, the king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. Shishak took Judah's fortified cities and all the treasures in the Lord's temple and king's palace. After the invasion by Shishak, Rehoboam and the people of Judah fell into hardship. The Lord then spoke to them. Let's read 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 5. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah, who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, You have forsaken me, so I also have forsaken you to Shishak. When King Rehoboam and the Israelites heard God through prophet Shemaiah, they admitted their sin. They said, The Lord is right to punish us. They humbled themselves and repented their sin. After the Lord saw their humility and contrition, he said, My wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by means of Shishak. Rehoboam then did good work for Judah, so the Lord took back his anger and did not destroy everything. Looking back on Rehoboam's reign, he at one time didn't seek the Lord and did many evil acts such as idol worship. Therefore God used Shishak, the king of Egypt, as his instrument to attack Judah. Also, the Bible records there were constant skirmishes between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. This conflict and struggle against northern Israel went on beyond Rehoboam's reign. In the end, though, he repented his evil ways and humbled himself. He acknowledged the righteousness of God. Overall, Rehoboam reigned over southern Judah for 17 years. In 1913 BC, he was laid to rest with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. King Rehoboam did evil acts, but in the end, he repented. What about Jeroboam of northern Israel? We mentioned briefly, he pushed out the chief priest who carried out the duties of the Lord. This was his thinking. After Jeroboam became the king of northern Israel, he wanted to be politically and religiously independent in every way from southern Judah. That was a major reason behind why Jeroboam drove out the chief priests. Consequently, King Jeroboam engaged in idol worship and did not walk in the path of God. When Jeroboam became king, he set up new high places in Dan and Bethel to provide his people a place of worship. He did not want his people to go south to Jerusalem to worship. Without these places, all Israelites would have had to go to the Temple of Jerusalem located in southern Judah to worship God. So, setting up these new high places in Dan and Bethel was a strategic decision on the part of Jeroboam. However, it resulted in his people to leave God and resort to idol worship. In those new high places, Jeroboam placed a golden calf and made the people bow down and offer sacrifice to it. The date of sacrifice was different from southern Judah, and the sacrifice that was supposed to be given only by the Levites or a chief priest was given by ordinary people and community leaders. All this was done to meet his political needs, to be completely independent from southern Judah, but in the end, it made the people in northern Israel commit sin against God. God saw the wickedness in northern Israel and sent a prophet to rebuke them. A cry from the man of God echoes through the scripture 
from 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 2 through 5. He cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Then he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar of Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. But his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes were poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. God gave a damning prophecy and showed an unmistakable sign. Jeroboam must have been terrified when he saw his hand shrivel up right before his eyes. He turned to the only person he could for help, the man of God who delivered the message. Through the prophet's prayer, his hand was then healed. However, even after this extraordinary experience, Jeroboam did not change his ways. He continued to sacrifice in high places and did idol worship. Therefore, the Lord rejected northern Israel. God detests idol worship, and he deals severely with such a sin. Jeroboam's sin was so great that when the northern Israel kings after him also did idol worship and sinned before God, this is what was said about each king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. It was said that they walked the path of Jeroboam. Jeroboam became the symbol of idol worship and sin. So today we talked about Rehoboam in southern Judah and Jeroboam in northern Israel. They were the first kings who faced off with each other in a divided nation. This concludes today's episode of Story of Kings. Next time, we'll learn about King Abijah. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Fear of the Lord. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. So when you think about growing a successful church in God's eyes, that is in God's eyes, not the world's eyes. When you think about growing a successful church in God's eyes, I bet you the word architecture is the last word that comes to your mind, right? I bet you don't think about architecture. Believe it or not, this is the important thing. There is something to be learned from church architecture about growing a successful church. What do I mean? Well, a few years back, our church, this church, went on a Reformation tour in Europe. So 500 years ago was the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther took 95 grievances that he had against the Catholic Church, known as his 95 Theses. He went to the church in Wittenberg and nailed that Theses, or those grievances, on the doors at the church at Wittenberg. That's how you posted stuff 500 years ago. Today, we post stuff on Twitter. Back in the day, you posted it on the church doors in the middle of town, and people literally would come and read it. That's how you posted things. So he posts that. And that started what is known as the Protestant Reformation. So last year marked the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. We went on a tour of Germany, Switzerland, and uh, France to look at all the great places and all the great things that happened during that Reformation. Part of that trip was spent visiting awesome cathedrals, the awesome cathedrals that are all over Europe. And what makes those ancient cathedrals so incredible is that the minute that you walk into them, as a matter of fact, the minute that you walk up to them, you are overwhelmed with an amazing sense of awe, reverence, and wonder. So just out of curiosity, how many of you in here today have ever been in a, in a, like a cathedral, whether on this continent or another continent, but you've been in a big cathedral of some sort or another? It's incredible when you walk into them, isn't it? It's amazing. Um, you walk in and you are just overwhelmed with a sense of God's, the grandeur of it all and, and all of it. Um, and, and like I said, even walking up to that, building can do that. It's amazing is that people walk into this church and they're overwhelmed. They go, wow, this church is amazing. It looks like a church. Look at this building. Because even so many churches today aren't, don't feel like churches. So it's funny that people walk in here and they feel like it's a church. You walk into this place and you feel like it's a church. Imagine walking into a place like that. It feels like a church. Your focus is immediately drawn upward to the vaulted ceilings. And it looks like they, those ceilings reach into the heavens, literally, You're also struck with a sense of grandeur and majesty. Your senses are flooded literally at every turn with how great God is. This building represents God and the God that we worship. And this building is magnificent. How much greater is the God that it represents? Not only does it represent the grandeur of God, you get a feeling of just how small you are. If you've ever been in one of those buildings, you're like, oh my goodness, you feel like this big. And really you should. I mean, that's the whole point. All of that, and that's the whole point, all of that was by design. Do you know that? All of it was by design. The people that built those cathedrals five, six, seven hundred years ago built them with the very purpose of creating a sense of awe, wonder, reverence, and fear in those that came to worship God. Interesting. They designed those buildings to create a sense of fear in those that came to worship You see, the people that built those churches understood something very important, something that we in this generation can lose sight of, and it is this. They understood the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that a healthy church will always have a healthy fear of the Lord as one of its key components, one of its key pillars. You guys know this verse well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, let me stress at this point that those men and women that built these churches five, six, seven hundred years ago were not trying to get people to fear God as though he were a tyrannical dictator or some rash or unreasonable God. Not at all. They simply wanted people to come into the presence of God with absolute awe and complete reverence before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is what they wanted. And they were smart in doing so. Why? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How appropriate that even as you walk up to this, to the cathedral that you're going to worship in, even as you walk up to it, your eyes are lifted up and you get a sense of God's grandeur and how small you are. They were geniuses in doing what they did. They really, really were. Now contrast that with the atmosphere that is often being created in churches today. 
Church services today are often being designed with the intent of creating a kind of mystical, spiritual encounter in which the worshiper is caught up into an almost hypnotic experience with God. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not necessarily decrying that or saying that it's wrong or bad or anything, but there is a difference in generations uh, in what each generation focused on. And again, 500 years ago, it was creating that sense of awe, splendor, and majesty, a sense of fear as you approached God and approached his temple to worship him. But today, again, it's this mystical, spiritual encounter, an almost hypnotic experience And that's important. It's important to note that contrast, and here's why. A mystic, hypnotic experience is not the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is it not? If you want a mystic, hypnotic, spiritual experience, there are plenty of places in the world you can go to get that. Sedona being one of them, not far from here. The church, folks, first and foremost, must be a place where we encounter God in all of his majesty and glory with a radical sense of our own humility in his presence and exalt God to the highest possible place that we can in our hearts. The Bible says, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. First Peter 3.15, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. In our hearts, we set apart Christ as Lord. As a church, we set apart Christ as Lord. The best thing that I can do as a preacher for you anytime that I stand up here and preach is exalt God to the highest place and keep man in his proper place. The danger is, not only for me as a preacher, but you and I as individuals, is that this is what happens. God is kind of good and we're not so bad. And so the distance between a God who's kind of good and we're not so bad isn't all that far. The problem is, God isn't just all that kind. He's not just kind of good. He's exceptionally good. He's glorious. He's majestic. He's holy in every way, shape, and form. In other words, when we approach God in worship, we must come on his terms and not ours. And having, folks, a healthy fear of the Lord is foundational to coming on his terms. You want to come to God on his terms? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It starts there. You come with hearts bowed down, understanding just who it is you're coming to worship. You see, a fear of the Lord keeps a proper distinction between the creator and the creature. It reminds us of just how completely other God is. Now, when I say how completely other God is, theologians use two words, pastors use two words, and the two words are imminence and transcendence. So we speak of God's imminence, we mean that God is close. His eminence is that God is close. And the Bible makes that abundantly clear. He's close. He's a God that loves us. He sent his son to die for us. His mercies are showered upon us. He's near to us. His arms are wrapped around us. He loves us. His eminence. But here's the deal. We can never divorce the eminence of God from the transcendence of God. The transcendence of God means that he is completely, even though he's eminent to us, he's close to us, he loves us, he is still God. He is still holy. He is still transcendent. He is still completely other than you and I are. And we can never lose sight of that. Perhaps one of the most famous verses in the Bible that speaks of this is Isaiah 55. You know it well. It says this. This is how different God is from you and me. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Okay. Neither are my ways your ways. Just in case you are wondering, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Look at what it says. As the heavens are higher than the earth. You want to know the difference between you and God? Well, compare heaven to earth. That's the distance. God isn't just kind of good and you're not so bad and the distance isn't so far. It is as the heavens are higher than the earth, God is up there and we're down here. That's the difference. That is how transcendently other God is than you and me. And while this might be the most famous verse, one of the most famous verses, it is certainly not the only verse that reminds us of God's transcendence. Isaiah has a lot to say on this matter. Isaiah says this, listen to this one. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. I hate to tell you this, folks. In comparison to the transcendent, majestic and glorious God, the one true God of heaven and earth. You and I are on the level of insects. That's right. And not even particularly good looking insects, grasshoppers. They're not the best looking. They're not ladybugs. Okay. They're grasshoppers. 
But again, do you see the point that Isaiah is making, that the Lord is making through Isaiah? God's up here, we're down here. Don't ever lose sight of it. And even though God is imminently close to us and loves us and died for us and has ripped the veil open that we might have access to him whenever we want, never lose sight of the fact of whose presence you're walking into when you walk confidently into his presence. You're walking into the presence of the one who sits above the circle of the earth. Isaiah 57, 15 says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Folks, only one person inhabits eternity. That's God. It is not any spiritual being. It's not any angel. It's not you and me. We must never forget the God that we serve is from everlasting to everlasting, without beginning or end, the first and the last. He himself possesses immortality and is the creator of all things. He alone inhabits eternity. He is eternal in nature, and we are his creatures, finite in nature. You might remember that Jesus very powerfully reminded his disciples about who they should really fear in life. He said this, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Folks, Jesus is very clear. One of the greatest dangers in life for those of us, for human beings, is losing sight of whom you should really fear. That's it. I can, do, I can just stop right there and say, do you realize that that is it? If you can keep in focus who you should really fear in this lifetime, you will solve a multitude of problems in your life. You will cover a multitude of anxiety in your life. You will get rid of a multitude of anxiety in your life. You will cover a multitude of sins if you can just keep, and if I can just keep in focus who I should really fear in this lifetime, and that is the Lord. That alone will empty out all the doctor visits and the, all the, the problems that we carry and the burdens and the anxieties, anxieties that we often carry will simply be removed if we just keep in mind that we do not need to fear men. The one we need, there's only one we need to fear, and we don't need to fear him as a tyrannical dictator. We fear him out of awe and reverence because he's the holy and majestic God that created all things. And even though we are on the level of insects, he loves us and died for us and came for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. These verses and verses like them are a powerful reminder, again, of the incredibly vast chasm that exists between the creator and the creature. And it's only when we keep in proper perspective who God is that we will walk in proper reverence and awe and fear of the one he's created. I always say this, and I did it in college when I was in college. In college, your worship experience on a Sunday morning was determined by what you did on a Saturday night. And, and I don't just mean going to bed at a reasonable time and taking care of yourself, but preparing your heart. Using the night before to prepare your heart that tomorrow I'm going to gather with the saints and worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm going to prepare my heart, my body, and my soul. My whole disposition will be prepared tonight for what I'm going to do tomorrow. Your worship experience on a Sunday morning is often determined by your attitude on a Saturday night. The danger, of course, is that we develop a flippant, lax, even careless attitude when it comes to our relationship with God. There are so many times, even as a pastor, I come to church on Sunday and I'm like, oh, let's just go to church. Not realizing for a moment that I'm about to walk into the presence of God with the saints of God to render praise unto him and then open his word and hear from him. That alone should humble me greatly. I think we can all agree this can happen pretty easily where we develop a flippant, lax, and even careless attitude with God. Don't you think? It can happen easily. It happens easily to me. If it happens easily to me, I know it happens to you too. Let me prove just how easy it can happen. So in the Old Testament, there's a fascinating story. It's in 2 Samuel. We read about a time in which the Israelites are transporting the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you know the Ark of the Covenant from Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? The Ark of the Covenant, right? I mean, pardon me, you know it from the Bible, but what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Do you remember? Yeah, the Ten Commandments, manna, uh, Aaron's rod that had budded. So there were certain key things from Israel's history that were in the Ark of the Covenant. So the Israelites are transporting the Ark of the Covenant, and they're doing it on a cart pull, being pulled by oxen. And everything's going smoothly until the oxen stumble. They stumble. And the Bible says that a man by the name of Uzzah, U-Z-Z-A-H, reached out his hand and touched the ark to stabilize it. And we read about that in 2 Samuel 6, 6. Here's what it says. And then, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, 
Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. Now, at face value, this seems like the noble thing to do. Uzzah is protecting the ark of the Lord from falling on the ground, getting dirty, hitting the dirt. Here's the problem. The problem was that Uzzah mistakenly thought his hands were holy enough to touch that which God had deemed sacred. He thought his hands were holy enough to touch that which God had seen deemed sacred. As the late theologian R.C. Sproul has stated, Uzzah made the mistake of assuming his hands were somehow cleaner than the dirt on which the ark would have fallen. Think about that. Uzzah made the mistake of assuming his hands were somehow cleaner than the dirt on which the ark would have fallen. He crossed the threshold of the sacred and the result was immediate death. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God. Wow. Think about that. You're transporting the ark. You're serving the Lord. You're, you're, you're just walking along and everything's great. The oxen stumble and you're, you reach out and you grab the ark to stabilize it and boom, you're dead. It makes me think of the phrase, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 6 that there's angels, seraphim, that fly before the throne of God, each with six wings. With two, they fly. With two, they cover their face. And two, they cover their bodies. It is as if the seraphim, these angels that are created to fly in the presence of God, themselves can barely stand to be in his presence because he is so majestic, so holy, so utterly transcendent than every, every, every other thing that he created that the angels themselves can barely stand to be in his presence. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Even angels know that coming into the presence of God, you come with your head bowed, your heart bowed. You're coming into the presence of greatness. You're coming into the presence of holiness, of splendor, of majesty beyond your wild imagination. You're approaching one who the Bible says exists in unapproachable light. Uzzah, hap Uzzah haphazardly and foolishly crossed the threshold of the sacred and he paid with his life for it. Now, if the story ended there, it would still be telling and pressing on us. But you know what happens next? Here's what, here's what happens next. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David was ready to receive the ark of the Lord. Everything was cool. Yeah, bring me the ark. And then Uzzah reaches out and touches it and dies. And David is reminded of the God he's following. He is reminded of the God whom he is following. And for a minute, he stops and he goes, how can this thing come into my presence? How can I hold this? He gets a sense of the power, majesty, splendor, and awesomeness of God. And he is filled with fear in that moment. And I will tell you folks, in that moment, that was the best thing that could have happened to David. David was described after, as a man after God's own heart. But David made mistakes in his life. And I would argue the mistakes that he made in his life were at times in which he didn't fear the Lord as he should. But in this moment, he is reminded and is given a great gift of the God whom he is following. You see, folks, there is a real temptation for everyone in this room right now that is a true believer. And here it is. Even though the gospel is all about Christ removing the barrier that exists between sinful man and a holy God, it's all about you and I having access to God like he is our father. Let us come, Hebrews says, let us then come boldly before the throne of grace with confidence that we may find help in our time of need. We can literally come boldly and confidently before God knowing that he's not gonna hold our sins against us and that we are his children and that we have access to him 24 hours a day. This is the, the glorious truth of the gospel. But even though all of that is true, we must never lose sight of the fact that God is still transcendently holy and completely separate compared to those of us who are his children. And as such, God is still to be feared by those of us who are his children. Amen? Yes, we have been adopted into his family. Yes, we are fully forgiven by the blood of Christ. Yes, we are now sons and daughters of the true and high king. Yes, we are joint heirs in the kingdom of God. But God is still God. We are still his creatures. And we must never, ever lose sight of that. And that is why, folks, it is so critical that when we share the gospel and that we talk to other people about God, that we don't just talk about the imminence of God. And by the way, 
we want to talk about the imminence of God. God is close. He loves us. He died for us. He's torn the barrier from top to bottom so that we can have access to God 24 hours a day as sons and daughters forever. We have eternal life. I mean, we could go on and on and on about that. But we never want to divorce that from the transcendence of God. We want to always make sure that when we talk about coming into the presence of God, that we don't lose sight of the presence of the one we are walking into, in whose presence we are walking into. We must also talk to our non-believing friends and family about God's holiness, his righteousness, his majesty, his glory. The non-believers we share the gospel with need to have a sense of the greatness of the one true eternal God that created all things and calls them now to repent and believe in his son who died for them. They need to know that God is this, a consuming fire. The Bible says that he exists in unapproachable light. He is a consuming fire. The Bible says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. That is the God we cannot be shy about sharing with. Of course, we don't just share the transcendence of God and divorce it from the imminence of God, just as we don't divorce the imminence of God from the transcendence of God. We must speak of both of them so that people have a full understanding of the God of the Bible, the God that is calling them to repent and believe. They need to know that God sits on his throne in heaven and stands ready to judge the living and the dead. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then our gospel presentation should, in some sense, help foster that in people. When I open my mouth and I speak of God, people should sense the wonder of the God that I'm trying to describe, the splendor and majesty of the God I'm trying to describe, so much so that they stand back in reverence of him. Who is this God that you're describing? Whoa, 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 slow down. That's what... There's a sense in which I want that. I want them to back up and go, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Who is this God you're describing? By the way, um, in the book of Revelation, you know, when it, when it talks about God, it, it talks about his coming judgment and he's now on full display in the book of Revelation. Here comes the lamb of God. And you know what the Bible says? The people of this world run into the caves and the clefts of the rock and ask the rocks to fall on them so that they might die because of the great and glorious wrath of the lamb that's being revealed. That's the God we also need to make known to people. That's the transcendent God. That's the lamb being revealed, and that's him in his transcendence. Of course he's imminent. The lamb is close. He died for you. Come to him. But he's also the lamb that stands ready to judge. And when he does, the men of this earth, the women of this earth, will run in terror. Turn to him while you can. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in him with all of your heart. Have I given you enough yet? All of that was in way of introduction to our text today, which I haven't gotten to yet. But don't worry, I got my eye on the time. We're going to get out of here on time. So church, why was the early church so successful in turning the most powerful world empire that anyone had ever seen inside out and upside down? You want to know why? Because they had a healthy fear of the Lord. They had a healthy fear of the Lord at all times. And it starts here. Acts chapter 5, church, I present to you the word of God this morning. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself or themselves some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? See, it wasn't a problem that he kept part of the money for himself. He had every, it was a free will offering. He could give whatever he wanted. He could have given it all. He could have given none. But what he did was he sold the property, gave some money and said, that's all of it. He lied. He lied. He wanted glory, more glory than he wanted to look super spiritual. And it goes on to say this. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, you could have done whatever you want. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And what does it say? And great fear came upon all who heard it. By the way, as you know, his wife comes in a little bit later. She lies and she dies. Now, when you first read this story, it seems like the punishment doesn't exactly fit the crime. Ananias and Sapphira definitely made a bad choice. They lied, but did they need to be put to death for it? At face value, it might even seem like God is being overly harsh. It's, it's reminiscent of what he did with Uzzah in putting him to death for simply reaching out and touching the ark when the oxen stumbled. But here's what you need to know, folks. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira is what should happen to each of us the moment that we sin. 
in our lives. The fact that God doesn't bring immediate and swift judgment upon you and me the moment that we sin is because God is gracious, patient, and kind. But know this, he should in that moment bring judgment upon you. But he doesn't because he poured that judgment out on his son. And therein lies the danger. Because God is so gracious, so patient, so kind, we can quickly lose sight of the utter holiness of God. Now listen very carefully. And the absolute vulgarity of even the smallest sin in God's sight. And I wrote it that way on purpose. The absolute vulgarity of even the smallest sin in God's sight. We tend to think, well, I've been adopted into God's family. I'm his child. Praise God. I'm forgiven. And sure, I have a few little sins, but doesn't everyone? And those little sins we make excuses for. But folks, remember, those little sins are an absolute vulgarity in the sight of God. Before we know it, we start to think that God's not all that different from us and we're really not all that bad. And instead of walking in absolute awe and complete reverence before the Lord of lords, the King of kings, what do we do? We walk somewhat carelessly, perhaps a little casually, and even worse yet, recklessly before the King of kings, the God that created us. There's no fear in our eyes. There's no reverence or awe in our hearts. The truth is the discipline that God brought upon Ananias and Sapphira was the very best thing that could have happened to the early church, just as it was the very best thing that could have happened to David that Uzzah was put to death. David received a gift that day, so did the early church. And it was because of this fear of the Lord that marked the early church, that they did what they did in turning the Roman Empire upside down and inside out. Listen, folks, God is still to be revered. His righteous commands are to be revered. Even the smallest offense of, God, uh, of one of God's commands is still a rebellious act of monumental significance on the part of those of us who are his creatures. I have no reservations for saying this. The church's impact today will be in direct correlation to the reverence and honor that we walk with before the Lord. But let me take that and make it more personal. Your impact, you personally, you, your impact in this generation, in your family, in your neighborhood, at your place of work or in your school, wherever you are, your impact will be in direct correlation to the reverence and honor that you walk with before the Lord. I can tell you the impact that somebody's going to have by the fear and the reverence and the awe that they have in their heart of the Lord. I can almost, they go hand in hand. But my fear is that just the opposite is happening in the world today. The church wants nothing more than to be liked by the world. We want people to join our churches, invite us to their parties, and look at us and welcome us into part, as part of the world. As a result, we try to placate people by painting a picture of God that we think will be appealing to them. As a result, we knock off the rough edges of God. We never speak of his transcendent holiness, his piercing and perfect judgment, his earth-shaking wrath, or the fact that he is a consuming fire. We don't speak of the dangers of falling into the hands of an angry God. Rather, we make God out to be someone who's a buddy, a pal, someone who loves us and wants us nothing, nothing more than for you and I to be happy. Now, I'm going to wrap up here, but everybody, what I'm about to say, if you take nothing from my sermon, take what I'm about to take right now. So do I have everybody's attention? Get what I'm about to say right here. I'm going to wrap up everything I'm going to say. Here it is. When we try to smooth off the rough edges of God, we're not doing anyone any favors. In that moment, and here it is, in that moment, we are trying to introduce people to a God we think they can wrap their minds around when what we should be doing is introducing them to a God who blows their minds away. Amen? Folks, it is not your job to clean up the gospel, to dress up the gospel, to dress up God, to take him off his throne and bring him down here so that somehow because he's down here, he'll be more appealing to people. No, leave him where he belongs, on his throne. Let people hear the words that come out of your mouth be in such a way that people step back and go, what? This is the God that you are proclaiming who exists in absolute holiness who is a consuming fire that exists in unapproachable light, in whom the angels that are before him fear him in the sense that they cover themselves because of his majestic holiness. This is the God you're telling me that you follow? Yes, I am. And he is the God that calls you to repent and believe in his son because it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. This is the gospel that we proclaim. This is the God that we proclaim. We don't dress him up, bring him down, or change him in any way. The brave thing to do, the faith-filled thing to do, the truly loving thing to do in this generation 
is to preach God as he is, not as we think he should be. That's the key. You keep the fear of the Lord in its proper place in your life, and then when you go out into the world, don't budge an inch. Don't budge an inch. You do not have to defend God. You do not have to defend the gospel. You don't have to bring God down or dress the gospel up in order for it to appeal to people. You preach God as he is. You preach the gospel as it is. You call people to repent, to count the cost, to turn from their sins and come to the one that can save them. And you make no apologies about it. My fear for the church in the 21st century is that our fear of man overrides the one whom we should truly fear, the Lord Almighty. So if I can be so bold to finish with a question, two questions. First is this, am I someone who has a healthy fear of the Lord? Do you have a reckless, haphazard, careless approach in your relationship with God? Are you like Uzzah, who carelessly steps over the threshold of the sacred without giving thought to it? Are you like Ananias and Sapphira that flirts with sin in the presence of a holy God and thinks you're going to get away with it? Do you have a healthy fear of the Lord? And then secondly, are you someone who challenges others to have the same? And that's the key, folks. You preach the imminence of God. He's close. He loves us. He died for us. And even though we're insects in his sight, we're the insects that he loves. Praise God. He's the God that loves humans. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. God loves us, but don't divorce it from the God that sits on the throne, glorious and majestic, a consuming fire who calls all men to repent and believe. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, that you are the transcendent God who sits enthroned in heaven. You inhabit eternity. Your name is holy. And yet, God, despite all of this, You sent your son into this world to live amongst us, to die for us, that we might have eternal life. So God, we thank you that on the one hand, you are high and exalted and lifted up and may we never lose sight of that. And on the other hand, we thank you that you are close and that you love us and you wrap your arms around us. So God, as we proceed from here, let us be a people that go into this world boldly proclaiming the God of the Bible, boldly proclaiming the gospel, not bringing you down or dressing up the gospel, but proclaiming you as you are and the gospel as it is. God, trusting that you will do a mighty work when we do. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everybody said with me, amen. God bless. God bless.
face with love himself His perfect spotless righteousness This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English speaking children. Our office number is 602 866 8999. And email address is heartandsoul.orgmail.com. Coming up next is praying for the next generation. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. Do you live in divine awareness of His perfect love for you every day? The Greek word for perfect is teleos, which means 
complete, mature, and lacking nothing necessary to completeness. Our God is the author of love, and His nature is summed up in the fullness of love. His love is divine, everlasting, complete, unfailing, lacks in nothing, and is a love feast of the burning passion of His heart on fire. So then, my beloved, what is your heart response to His passionate love for you? Song of Solomon chapter 1 verse 4 says, Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. The Hebrew word for rejoice is samaha, which means rejoice, delight, be glad, and filled with joy. Samaha usually refers to a spontaneous emotion of jubilance or extreme happiness which is expressed in some visible and external manner. Samaha is expressed in many ways, including blowing trumpets, singing, and dancing. Would you like to see our next generation rejoicing in the Lord with passionate worship? Unfortunately, recent studies show that approximately 7 out of 10 young adults who previously attended a Protestant church left their church between the ages of 18 and 22. The reasons include moving to college, seeing church members as judgmental or hypocritical, feeling disconnected to people in their church, disagreeing with the church's stance on political or social issues, and work schedule. The remaining third said they consistently attended their church because they saw church as a very important part of their entire life. Church was a vital part of their relationship with God. They wanted help from a church to guide their decisions, and they desired to follow the example of a parent or other family member. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, the Apostle Paul prays to the Father that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. The Greek word for being rooted is chrizao, which means become stable and cause a person to be thoroughly grounded. The Greek word for grounded is thamelioo, which means to lay the foundation, consolidate, and settle. My beloved, let's pray that our young people will be deeply rooted in God's love and securely connected to the body of Christ. Father, overshadow us with your presence as we rejoice and dance before you, remembering your love for it is the very theme of our songs. You bring us to the banquet hall, and your banner covering us is love. We desire to live every moment in your presence, finding the sweet loveliness of your face, filled with awe, delighting in your glory and grace. Jesus, may our love offering and our prayers be a sweet fragrance to your heart. Father, we cry out for the college and young adult generation. Fill them with love songs to awaken their hearts with fresh passion for your name. Remove every hindrance and compromise that are deeply hidden in their hearts to hinder their relationship with you, so they will not lose faith and will remain 
unshaken. Father, unveil the unlimited riches of your magnificent glory and favor within them until supernatural strength floods their innermost being with your divine might and explosive power. Then the life of Christ will be released deep inside them and the resting place of your love will become the very source and root of their lives. Fill them with your endless and extravagant love until they are filled to overflowing with the fullness of God. Raise them up as a generation who would know you as the author and foundation of wisdom and knowledge. Let their college and young adult years be the time for them to encounter you in a life-changing way and be set apart for spiritual awakening. Lord, cultivate their hearts with a deep sense of belonging in the family of God. Raise up godly leaders who are called to shepherd this generation with your heart of compelling love and divine truth. Empower these leaders with your anointing to teach them your word, guide their decisions, and lead them deeper into the path of true godliness. Father, lead this generation to find the place and purpose you have ordained for them in the body of Christ and fulfill their destinies for your glory. In your holy name we pray. Amen. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. 